Welcome to the Holy Spirit's Curriculum of Joy podcast. My name is Wanaka Oberhuber, and I'm your host. My guest today is Andrew Kirschbaum. Hi. So I would like to begin with a question I like to ask every guest when they come the first time. How did you come to see the world the way you do today? So I've basically dedicated my entire life to finding the good feeling that the opposite of enlightenment gives. In other words, I suffered, and so I sought from age 8 to 27. And when I was 8 years old, I remember turning to my mom and telling her that I felt depressed. And she said, sweetie, what do you mean you feel depressed? You're 8 years old. You know, what are you feeling? And I said, uh, I feel as though I'm separate from the rest of the universe, and it's the loneliest feeling ever. I think many of us have that feeling of suffering and seeking, and I think many of us call it depression, when in fact it isn't always technically that. It's just the feeling of being separate from the divine or separate from the one being or nature, whatever you want to call it. So I had a shift in perspective, what most people refer to as enlightenment, uh, about five years ago, and it was radically different ever since. Would you like to go into more depth about the whole thing? I could go on for about 400 hours. So I, I usually respond well to very precise questions or else I, I kind of mirror in my response the depth or level or um, brevity of the question. So if, you, if anyone has any follow-up questions on that, I can go into detail for as long as they'd like. Um, maybe you'd like to describe the how you came to understand that you feel separate from something because that's not like everyone can't pinpoint it that way. You pinpointed it that way at eight years old. So well, that's I'm a unique quite case in that sense because most most people, I think the average human being and the average age for what I call unawakening is age eight when they fall out of that piece that surpasses understanding when they fall out of that natural state. So that's to say every small child and animal is awake and they're in that peace. They're in that natural state, in that awakened state. And most human beings fall out of that around age eight. And I guess I was just very, perhaps even overly self-aware. I would say that the seeker is more self-aware than the sage, even though the sage has direct effortless access to the background awareness that wakes up to itself. So the sage is aware of that which is aware, and the seeker is aware of the sense of self-identification. So if somebody were to ask me, what is the ego mind? I would say it is the felt sense of separation. So when I was eight years old, the ego mind reached a threshold of, um, it grew into itself, into its own delusion as we do, which might be what separates adult life from the childhood life, is that adults, 99.9% .9 of them, are not in the awakened state. 
So it's odd for an eight-year-old to be able to be that self-aware of that, even to know of those things and not have access to those materials, and even stranger for it to be that eloquent to speak on those matters, such self-awareness. But all this intelligence, all it boils down to is that uh, more suffering is generated during the seeking years, and there's more fuel for that seeking. So seeking itself is born out of suffering, and suffering itself is born out of feeling separate from the infinite, from the divine, from your own true nature. Um, and there's been a, a lifetime worth of uh, seeking and calculating and understanding and researching and eventually mystical experiences, astral samadhi, awakenings, kundalini awakenings, realizations. Um, there's been been a few of them. I had a the kundalini kind of came online around age 16. I had a full-blown kundalini awakening age 24, sent me to an astral samadhi type gnosis event which was like meeting God and conversing with it at the time. And then three years later, I saw this astral geometric shape of light, which is kind of like witnessing your own soul, if you will. And then five months after that, I experienced what most people refer to as awakening or enlightenment or liberation or the peace that surpasses understanding. Yeah, that that's really... Those are terms that I, that not everyone is acquainted with, so you might want to explain it a little more. You know these experiences, these different types of experiences, and you speak of it as if it has levels, as if one's you start with one and then it goes to the next and so on. Maybe you'd like to expand on that in terms of how you experienced it, in particular. So I have uh, experiences and I have a kind of mapping system of this just from having been through this, the mind starts to automatically map things out. So I would say as far as levels, um, there are levels of a lot of people question me when I say realization is sudden. They say what happened to me gradually over years, but they don't realize we're talking about realization and not understanding or something like that. So I would start with saying first there's belief. Uh, I believe Santa Claus is coming tomorrow morning down my chimney. He's going to put presents under my tree. There's bite in a, uh, I have a belief in Santa Claus. Um, level two would be understanding. So I understand that there's, you know, someone, so a seeker might come to me and say, well, you know, I don't have any experience with this. I don't know if you're telling me the truth, but I understand that there might be something to this. I'd like to see if it's the case or like to explore it. They're open to it. So understanding requires an openness that belief doesn't but it's still not there yet. And then, then there's, so understanding is beyond belief and knowing is beyond understanding. Um, you can understand that maybe it rains or it doesn't, but you can also look out your window and go, oh, it's raining. And for all intents and purposes, um, without getting too much into the meta epistemological weeds on it, we can claim that we know it's raining if we look out the window and we're justified in believing that it's raining. Beyond knowing, and ultimately there's no such thing as knowledge really, um, but beyond knowing, there's gnosis, which is knowing for sure, which is being in samadhi and, and conversing with God or with the divine intelligence, um, having an astral projection. You know for sure that this is beyond the brain. You know for sure that these realms aren't just stories, that they're at least something everyone can experience with infinite profundity. But none of that is yet enlightenment. Um, and then finally, the thumb is different than the other fingers. And there's realization, and realization is beyond even gnosis. 
and realization is sudden. One does not uh, gradually realize that the snake is a rope. The moment they realize the snake is a rope, it's quite sudden. And the same thing with enlightenment. It's, it's quite sudden, if not unexpected. And in a way, it's not even shocking because it's a, it's a remembering of your true nature. You know, in A Course in Miracles, it says the last step is taken by the divine. So it's, it's, you don't do it. You, you can prepare yourself. You can do all these things to be open for it, but you will not be the one doing the last step. So you're like you're saying it's sudden. Yeah, you don't you do not know when it's there, when it will come. But when it's there, it's there. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And something I would add to that is, you know, when I had the Kundalini awakening at 24, the Kundalini went from the base of the spine up to the crown and beyond. And then when I saw that diamond shape of light later on, it seemed like the Kundalini energy had kind of went up into that shape and stayed there. But then five months later, right right before the awakening itself was triggered, it felt like um, like grace. It was like a, a descent of Shakti. Um, it was kind of like a, a very thick blanket of staticky energy on the wind or in the atmosphere just kind of fell and draped the landscape in every direction as the Buddha's robes. So it's, in other words, what I'm suggesting is that it's a primarily an energetic shift and not primarily uh, some brain physiological thing. Yes, it changes the way the brain functions. Yes, it changes the biochemistry and the way the default mode network structures itself. But too many people are stuck on this materialistic paradigm of, oh, well, there's a physical separate thing called a brain and it has everything to do with that. And it's, it's cool to know those things and map it out that way. But we are talking about a dream brain. And so I think it's fundamentally one of my roles is to, for the audience is to suggest or to very confidently uh, imply that this is what we call enlightenment is primarily a sudden energetic shift in the feeling tone that flavors the rest of the lifetime. So awakening itself is more of a, an emotional shift than primarily an intellectual one. Someone can know all the things a sage knows is not feel that way. And what they're really looking for isn't something to know. They're looking for a feeling. And that feeling is essentially oneness. Yeah. And in A Course in Miracles, it speaks of the teacher of God as the primary trait of a teacher of God is to trust. So is that something that you noticed that that became your primary trait? Yeah, absolutely. Trusting in God, trusting in reality, trusting in the scripted nature of all this. And and it's it's hard to put it into words and explain it to a seeker because they think it's conditional. And so I tend to say things like, listen, even if I get hit by a bus and I'm bleeding, like, I need you to know everything's okay. Like, you can trust even that. Like, regardless of what it looks like, you can trust what's going on behind the scenes because what's running the show in actuality is infinite love. And so why, would, why couldn't that be trusted? Infinite awareness, infinite bliss, infinite energy, infinite love are the, are the qualities of, of God. And a lot of people say that awareness or God doesn't have attributes or qualities, but that's not entirely true because it does have qualities, characteristics such as inherent goodness, infinite love, infinite mercy, infinite awareness. And um, yeah, everything is connected with infinite foresight. Everything's perfectly balanced. Anyone that goes into the hard sciences deeply enough sees the fingerprints of God all over everything, whether they like it or not.
How do you feel about this plurality of languages used to describe these various experiences that people have and how some people get caught up on their language, on the language they learned it through or learned to describe it in? And then, then I know I always hear this, you know, it's so wide and open and so on. And I'm wondering, I, I, I think that once, if you have trust, you, you can't, you don't need to get caught up about the language anymore. So the language is like a conceptual framework. I call it the frame around the painting. It's like, does the masterpiece painting really need a gold frame? No, it doesn't need it at all. Is it a little nice to have a little extra? Sure, you know. I, I was fortunate or blessed enough to have all the conceptual framework mapping there prior to this event happening. So I was very well groomed. It was very smooth. And I was very lucky in that sense. A lot of people will come into this and not even know what happened to them, for starters, and then maybe go into the conceptual afterwards, even though they're already in that state. Um, I was um, feverishly, ravenously seeking precisely this uh, my entire life, basically. So when it finally came, I was fortunate enough to have it in that proper context and be able to immediately speak on it. But the plurality of languages, uh, like, for example, you'll see different traditions kind of get stuck on or attached to their preferred method of speaking on this when really, and you'll even go to certain groups, and you'll see people having a debate when really they agree. They just don't realize that it's just a jargon thing that if they to see the other word bank and they go oh we actually if you define this that way we actually do agree so i tend to say things like i i speak the re, uh, the language behind languages i worship the religion behind religions there's a shared truth and that shared truth can best be mapped out with confidence experientially so anyone that's just dryly speaking from a book and they have no experience on it um, I can see why that would turn people off and why certain traditions end up the way they do. Conversely, we can see things like in the radical non-duality community, for example, where it's really important to them how they word it. And you'll see a lot of people, regardless of what level of their awareness, they'll get stuck on kind of the word game of it and they'll lose sight of the actual goal, which is um, to shift the awareness, not just to get the words right. Um, I could teach a parrot to say anything. I could teach a computer to say anything. It doesn't mean it's having the same experience as someone who was originally speaking from that perspective, perhaps. For example, in radical non-duality uh, and in Zen, they'll both say things like, don't use the word no, as in, oh, I know. But then if you go to Advaita Vedanta, they say awareness, being, and knowing are the same thing. So even though they're talking about the same thing, they're using two very different sets of word banks. And a lot of people get stuck on that. They don't realize What's actually going on is we're talking about levels of awareness, and we're talking about experiences and realizations that really are so far beyond words that to get stuck on any given word bank is kind of missing the point. And I see a lot of that in, in many traditions. So one of the methods I actually give seekers, um, because they're used to going to these radical non-dualists who won't give them any breadcrumbs, they just want to starve the sense of me. And that has its own place, you know. Um, but when someone's really looking for something, uh, one of the methods I would actually recommend is to kind of hop around from tradition to tradition or expression to expression as it resonates. A few days here, a few days there, a few months here, what, whatever your feeling is. If you're doing a certain meditation, you're doing it for 20 years and it just doesn't resonate with you, why would you be doing anything ever? It doesn't resonate with you. So I find that strange. Um, 
people should do what works, people should do what resonates with them, and they should follow that inner guidance because technically that inner guidance is is divine and it's, it's tied to our purpose and where where on the chessboard this particular piece is supposed to be and what it's supposed to be doing in that greater scheme. So we shouldn't try to be like anyone else. We should try to be this character with its inner guidance aligned. And sometimes that means hopping from this place to this place or expressing things differently even. Yeah, I think that's really important. And in A Course in Miracles, it speaks of it that the message is what it's about, not the the form. So I th that's that's why I spoke about that, because it's also there. And I, and I think that's really important. Yes, having the experience is what we all want. Those who don't have haven't had it or don't are not experiencing at this moment. Yes, that's something very important to us all. So yeah, and coming from there is is very important too. And another thing that's very interesting about it is you continue to live a life and you continue to have experiences and so on. So this is like something going on with a life, right? It's not it's not separate from it. So maybe you would like to speak about that a little. Absolutely. So there's and this is going to be a bold statement. Um, there are at least three perspectives. Um, just as hesitant as a seeker would be to learn that there's this other perspective, and they would fight it. And they would say, no, this can't be the case. You must be mistaken. You must be delusional. You must not understand fully. There's three perspectives. So the first perspective is one of the seeker, where the world is real. They feel separate. Um, they might not have direct contact with that background awareness. They might not understand the things that sages are saying. And I call that first mountain. In Zen, we would say, you know, the cup is full. Uh, and then, but in Zen, they also say, you know, you're supposed to empty the cup to refill it. Or as Jesus would say, the cup runneth over, you know, after a certain point when anointed with the holy oil. Um, so the first perspective is one of seeking and feeling separate. The second perspective is one of being newly awakened and to some extent being stuck in the opposite of the seeking ordinary mentality, being stuck in the no sense of self, et cetera. And some people find they can't even function in that state. Some people find they have an instant integration upon awakening like I did. But even with an instant integration, um, you know, four and a half years later, I had an, a second awakening. It was an even deeper heart awakening, which was Kundalini based. I call it the electric resurrection. And with that, there's a, a third mountain perspective, as I would call it, where the empty cup gets filled again. When I was on second mountain, I, I was kind of uh, leaning more toward like, you know, Neo-Dvaita, radical non-dual perspective at first anyway, even though I immediately knew that wasn't quite the full story i knew it was a helpful method for people um but then eventually you, you realize that everything that's rejected by radical non-duality is later then included again because true non-duality is all inclusive and it includes so eventually there's a re-merging of all this stuff and jesus actually put it pretty well this third mountain perspective when he said that I'm not, I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. And most people focus on, see, he's not of the world. But he was also saying, I am in the world. In other words, I'm fully participating with the character and the role and the story. I'm not just 
sitting in a cave spacing out, even though that's quite blissful and quite enlightened and you have direct access to that at will from the awakened perspective, there is a third perspective where the personal comes back into play. Not that you're tricked again or that you lost your fire or anything like that. It's just that you, you're, you're so free that you're also free to not always come off as enlightened. If that was like, like that even is a thing, right? There's no, there's no proof or quality of old enlightened people do this. It's just a, a quality of awareness. Um, so with Third Mountain, there, I would I say it goes from real to unreal to surreal. It goes from personal to, to impersonal, and then it re-includes both again. So you get the best of both worlds with the third perspective. And, uh, and who knows, maybe there's more than three, right? <laughs> yeah, I was about to say that. What do you think will come out next? <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know if i were to theorize about a you know they always talk about a head awakening heart and gut so it's like well if stream entry if the piece that surpasses understanding is the the head awakening and a lot of people at this point in the story they would go well wait a minute as soon as i had my awakening i was very infinitely loving and it was like yes that but even that can deepen with a proper heart awakening. And then perhaps there's a gut level awakening. If I had to theorize, I would say it's most likely to do with respecting the body, being fully embodied and having the body fully calibrated in a way that can maximize the, the bringing in of the, the qualities of God or the qualities of that background awareness uh, more and more into the body, into the personality that's walking around town interacting with the world. Sounds like you're looking forward to that. <laughs> it's always good to look forward, you know. In Zen, they say this way is up. In other words, looking forward is up. As as you ascend, you're always looking forward. I I used to say things like stumbling forward on diamond stilts, you know, because none of us are doing anything. We're just being dragged along the train tracks, if you will, as the train itself. Um, there's only one doer, and that would be what most people would call God. Um, so for us, um, to the extent that we are that, yes, there's, we are all equally the one doer. Um, beyond that, though, uh, we are all being moved. Um, we are all figments within, a, within God's daydream, essentially. But it's more of like a fantasy. So human beings are the beloved of, of the divine, as are all things. And this is essentially infinite because everything is infinite. So there's never a beginning or an end or a middle. But with that third mountain perspective, you know, first mountain would say, well, I'm becoming enlightened. Second mountain would say, oh, no, no, everyone's already enlightened. Call off this search. Um, but with third mountain, there's a, there's a realization like, okay, everything already is the case. And there's this apparently arising appearance of becoming as well and so again it's just a reintegr it's an instant effortless reintegration of the personal and the impersonal realms and it's seen that they too are not two and that resolves itself and you find yourself comfortably ordinarily kind of back to where you started but with having gone through every kind of uh, level of realization in that sense. So there are additional levels of um, samadhi or, or magnitude of awareness, 
Um, but overall, if somebody has one non-dual shift, you get the message. So if you had 20 additional non-dual shifts, it would just be, yeah, this, okay. It wouldn't be this mind-blowing radical change in your world. It would just be, okay, yeah, more of this, a little deeper of this, okay. Um, I wouldn't even say that what I experienced was a second non-dual shift. It was more of a kind of a kundalini heart-based type of thing, but it did bring me to that, that third mountain perspective that I knew was kind of on the brink anyway. Um, you can't just stay in the impersonal over time. It, uh, I mean, you could, but it would, wouldn't be quite as functional. Uh, so people that get stuck that way, um, it's not like something wrong happened, but there are additional more matured seasoned layers to the non-dual understanding for sure that are more inclusive and there's a lot of talk about ethics in within the non-dual perspective and there's many non-dual perspectives i mean according to languages we were speaking of not for according to experience of course so yeah so what do you say to this whole debate about ethics? So Socrates was awake, and his favorite question when he would bug people that they didn't have the answer to, he'd say, so what is virtue? And that's usually what would shut them down and short circuit them. Uh, Socrates, like Jesus, was very awake and you know, unfortunately killed by the masses and the state of that time. Um, due to the level of awareness they had without fear, speaking about it directly with truth. Um, so I would say the first mountain perspective of the seeker is very virtue signaling, very self-righteous, very um, based in ethics. The initial non-dual non shift shows that morality is um, kind of a part of the cultural conditioning on one level, and so they they don't they tend to reject, I would, when I was in that level, I would probably say something like awakening is amoral. In other words, morality has nothing to do with this. But then upon third mountain with the return of the personal, you kind of come back to an ordinary understanding of ethics. And um, you realize that it's not so much that you have to do this or that. It's simply that if you, if you, if you go about your life as love, first of all, you're gonna be aligned with the, the divine infinite because that's what it is, is infinite love. But secondly, you're going to be thinking more clearly. You're going to be experiencing a more complete emotion. Your body is going to be in better health. We're engineered to do this, to be this, to be altruistic. And it isn't just one or the other. So many people get stuck on talking about it metaphysically and energetically, or they get stuck on talking about it physiologically and hard science-based. And it's both. Even if you looked at it from a material science perspective, we are engineered and evolved to be altruistic as self-aware social primates. And from the other perspective, um, those are the qualities of God. And so the more you bring that into your day-to-day -day life, um, the more you can be aligned with that. And if you, another way to put it in a deeper sense is, if you have a deep enough realization of what's going on and who you are, you, you, you're only going to behave as a saint would because there's no choice. You see it for what it is. The same reason you don't just start punching yourself or putting yourself down in your head. It's the same reason. It's like you realize it's all one being. And it's not just a theory or, oh, there's this philosophy I'm going to live my life by. And so that's why I should behave this way. After a certain point, it's so instantly confronting you without having to calculate or anything like that. 
it's just so obvious that you are everyone. And so you always have everyone's best at heart. You always have the best intentions. You're always operating out of love just from having realized what you've realized. There's no choice. Yeah, something from A Course in Miracles again. Do you rather, are you rather right or happy? Is one of the things that it says in A Course in Miracles. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, uh, there comes a point where you have to kind of look at that because it's like, okay, yeah, you can be the smartest guy in the room, win every debate, but where are your friends and family? What, you know, what, why are you so alone? It's like, it's the type of thing. It's like, in the end, love is the answer. The heart is always the final answer. You know, sometimes I'll say things to people like, well, awareness is the final word on it. They'll say, what about love? And I'll say, okay, you got me there. It's a better word, you know, because, uh, even just being, you know, some clever guy, really mapping it out, having all these, it's like the whole point of there even being a dream world is for the social appearance of love and for God to love itself as the many is why we're here. Um, how it's being done is a, a play of light and energy that doesn't actually exist because awareness doesn't actually move. So the unmoving awareness pretends to move. That's why in the beginning it rejoices and says, let there be light. And it was good because it's saying, look, I'm playing and it's working because this can't actually happen, but I'm manifesting the miracle. And the miracle is the universe that we seem to inhabit because this can never be the case. There is no universe. That's why one of the, of course, the miracles guys wrote a book called the disappearance of the universe because there never was one. That's the realization. The disappearance is him realizing, oh, there can never be one. So the fact that there seems to be this infinite universe full of infinite beings and infinite configurations, that's the miracle. Because from my perspective, it's realized very directly, this can't be the case, but it can seem to be. And that's the true miracle. That's beyond walking on water. The fact that we're even having this conversation is, uh, there's infinite gratitude for the appearance of the two in that sense, knowing full well there isn't. And being fully realized, knowing for sure there's only one being here, it's pretty cool that there's still some part of that that successfully, ongoingly seems like there's more than one being present on one level. So does anyone have any questions at this point? Okay. It looks like it's us <laughs> some more. So, yeah, so this, this perspective of love um, and this perspective of all being a dream, and yet the experience of this dream um, undoing itself, disappearing, is, is a miracle, right? I think that's what you were trying to get at, right? So the, the fact that this dream even arises at all is is the primary miracle people could say that awakening is is the prime miracle but really the fact that there seems to be a world is the primary miracle awakening is a secondary miracle in that sense um but really the purpose of life there is no purpose to the extent like it's not like everyone has to wake up or something bad's going to happen it's just that really the purpose even though the radical non-dualist will say there isn't one um but, you know, if somebody put me to it and said, you know, you have to come up with a prayer, I would say it's to enjoy and to lean into that enjoyment. And 
perhaps awakening can help better enjoy more effortlessly, but awakening itself isn't the primary purpose, I wouldn't say. Um, more to enjoy this profound miracle that is, uh, seems like a duality that can't ever exist. That's the miracle. There can't ever be duality. And yet there seems to be a dualistic world. So this isn't something for all of us to escape. This isn't some matrix or prison or classroom. Uh, this is this is a this is a a playground. This is this is for play. This is for enjoyment. This is divine entertainment. And yeah, it's all out of love. So the perspective I'm talking about, as far as morality was concerned, it's like if you have a deep enough realization that you realize you are God, that that instantly makes you like the prime ancestor, you know, it's like you, you're every character's great, 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 great grandparent times infinite, you know, all the way back, even though it's not like that, it's eternal. That's why in Zen, they say things like, show me the face you had before your parents were born. Because we all come from the same source, but there's no separation. And so you can't even call it a source because there's only a oneness. Nothing came from some secondary thing. You know, I used to channel as well back as a seeker. Uh, I know the Course in Miracles is channeled by, uh, supposedly by Jesus, and uh, somebody channeling an entity calling itself Jesus or channeling Jesus directly. And when I would channel, the entity would call itself Logos, which is a Christian term. I'm kind of a Buddhist guy, you know, back then. And uh, Logos meaning the word or reasonability or uh, figuring it out itself. And I, I come from a very Buddhist perspective, and yet all my mystical experiences were uh, surprisingly Judeo-Christian, which is interesting. Uh, here I am, this hyper-Buddhist Vajrayana-type guy, and, you know, I have that Kundalini awakening, and I, I get launched into astral samadhi, and it's like Bugs Bunny goes to heaven, and the level of cliche, you know, like, oh, this, this is what you'd expect heaven to look like. Like, okay. And then... Uh, Upon awakening, it happened on a Sunday, on Father's Day, in the year of the rooster, which is another symbol for Jesus or Lucifer or awakening or the dawn or the sunlight. So I find that very strange. It had an awakening on Father's Day on a Sunday, which is a very Christian kind of metaphor or undertone as this very, very Buddhist guy. You know, it's always interesting. Yeah, and you you speak of of Jesus, and I say Yeshua, but it doesn't matter. Um, so you have a connection to that that way of looking at it, you know, this way of experiencing the infinite through this symbol of of wholeness, of completeness, of human awareness that we we experience as Yeshua, right? So that's that's really. I think that's a very important thing to talk about. You also said that you like using the word, the Holy Spirit. And I would like to hear more about that as well. So it's kind of, a, it goes back to that first question where we're talking about getting lost in the weeds of jargon or different word banks and how we lose people along the way if we only stick to one expression. So if you only use one traditional way of expressing or one one way to talk about this, you, you, you're pigeonholing your audience into a, 
a fortieth of what it could be type of thing. And so I just try to open my audience up by speaking about it in as many possible ways as possible, and especially in the West. If I'm going to use some word like Kundalini, people will be like, I, "You lost me, bud." And like, "Oh, the Holy Spirit." Like, "Oh, okay." Yeah, that feeling of aliveness, that life force energy, you know. So Jesus once said, man does not live on bread alone. And that's what he was talking about. He's talking about, you know, the body doesn't just root, run on food. There's a mysterious current of energy, the, the animating life force principle itself, essentially being breathed into us, you know. Um, and that's important to realize is that that's one of the things I like to highlight is that even though I'm well-versed in all the hard sciences and the physiology of evolutionary psychology and behavioral neuroscience on a very high level, um, that someone of that type and understanding would still talk about it and, and not only talk about it, but emphasize the importance of the fact that this is primarily life force energy related and only secondarily physiological. So when he says, let thine eye be single and thy body full of light, things of that nature he's talking about a layer of reality most people don't want to talk about most people want to talk about the absolute or the relative and there's something in between and in that in-between layer is what most people call the astral realm and basically you can do something called uh, guru yoga which is where the name is misleading but it basically means you can tap into that higher realm and you can tap into the energetic signatures of past living, it doesn't matter, masters, and you can download the essence or flavor of their qualities or their blessings. So for example, you could access the, the archetype or the being of Jesus, and in doing so, on a certain level, it, the debate doesn't even matter. Like, was Jesus ever a person who ever even lived? It doesn't matter. Because even if for some strange reason there was no historical Jesus, human beings with their awareness have already archetypally created a vortex that has similar power anyway. So even if there was no, you could still access the same, it's the same thing. You're accessing this, the, the unconditional infinite love of the, of the sacred masculine, or, or you could argue the sacred masculine and sacred feminine both merged. And so I, I personally do kind of, access that energy the energy of jesus and I talk about jesus more than you'd think for this you know this kind of very buddhist guy who's uh gotten close with the the radical non-dualists and things like that to just openly talk about jesus and the quality is is uh, refreshing and interesting because yeah Of course, in miracles is also non-dual, and and it speaks of Yeshua all the time. So, so it's a very um, beautiful thing to share about this. You know, to say yes, the non-dual has many many flavors when you go to that level, as you were sharing about. That doesn't mean that it's all about that, but it, but it does show that we can. We have a lot to gain by, by by allowing ourselves to be open to what what we experience. And I think that's also a beautiful point. You said you had all these experiences that you could say had some connection to Christian terminology, right? And Christian symbology and, and Christian experiences. And yet you on the outer were very into a Buddhistic <laughs> way of expressing yourself. So I think that's a very important thing to 
to be aware of. And it and what I think is also interesting is that it doesn't feel like a contradiction to you. It, it really fits together. You know, at first it, it kind of felt like it did. Like, cause here I am, this guy that words it all perfectly, maps it out perfectly for everyone else. People come to me to see where they're at, things like that. But then it was kind of stuck in my head cause like, it was like, okay, like, I was still in the seeking mode when I had these experiences that would indicate that like there's things like reincarnation, there's things like a realm of beings of light that are that still maintain some level of individuality. And and then you're confronted with the that versus the radical non-dualists always forcing the language, regardless of context, regardless of the subtle nuance just being missed. Um, they're like a toddler with a gun in a way, and which is which is beautiful. I, I I appreciate what that group of people has has um, shown the world, et cetera. But it's not the final say. There's there's additional layers, and basically they they always look at the language contradicting itself. Well, language will always contradict itself. Language itself is inherently dualistic, so there is no perfect way to put it in words. It doesn't exist. So anyone stuck on this idea of like, well, we got to put it in the words perfectly. You can't say that, but you can say this. It's like, no, every word will miss this equally. Every word will hint at duality when there isn't any. So we have to get beyond that and realize in all humility and courage that language is sloppy and dualistic, but we're going to use it anyway. And so I had that that thought too, where it was like, and it was fresh too, because I had seen that shape of light and immediately, this was five months before what we call enlightenment. And I remember seeing them being very blissed out and seeing that shit going, oh, that's me, you know, more than the body. That's me. But there's still that individuality. It's still not, oh, well, that's just the absolute formless. No, that's a being of light. And uh, we all have and are that. And then five months later to experience awakening and to be in that radical non-dual community of people expressing uh, as I'm trying to express and them looking at it kind of funny like, well, how does that go hand in hand? And I did a few talks where I talk about all my experiences and people go, well, how does that add up? And I go, I don't know. It's not my job. My job is just to tell you what happened. And if you want to figure out how you think it works or doesn't knock yourself out, it doesn't even feel like my role to come to terms with how those things can comfortably not be paradoxical because everything already is comfortably paradoxical and paradox to me implies completion. So it's all there, it's all complete, it's all whole, and we are, we don't need to figure out how to express or demonstrate this state, because we are the expressions, we are the demonstrations. And by we, I don't just mean sages, I mean every human being, every animal, every flower. We are the demonstrations, we are the expressions of that infinite, innate joy of being, and of that infinite love and awareness, and that light. And it's all play. It's all just playfulness. It's innocent. There's no real danger. Yeah, it, it says in A Course of Miracles that words are twice removed from reality. So, so it also <laughs> confirms that. Okay, we have someone who has a comment or a question or something to share. So go ahead, Julie. 
Oops, sorry, I didn't realize I was on mute. Thank you for sharing all these ideas. I've been listening here and, you know, I can get there. I can get to these high level ideas and beliefs and this, you know, commitment to, to be in this place. But what I find is every day I'm so challenged by other people, by conflict, by strong emotions, by things that I, I, I didn't want to have happen, you know what I mean, disciplines, whatever. And, and but, you know, I start out my day fully committed. And then, you know, each breakdown along the way gets me to a point where I can't feel it anymore, you know, so then I start the day over, but like, I don't know what you do to, you know, not get, you know, I guess, pulled into the duality or pulled into the human, you know, part of this journey. So everybody thinks that they're a human being in a world of duality that they don't like, that they're trying to escape, to enter into the formless absolute as if that's the point, when in actuality, the formless absolute successfully escaped as us, and that this is the freedom to enjoy and experience as if more than one being. And so it might be very counterintuitive but the whole purpose is to experience our own ordinary messy human life with all of its wonder and beauty. And and the thing about it that, sorry, go ahead. Were you gonna say something else before I go into more detail on that? No, no. Okay, so the main thing I would have to say is that a lot of people will ask me questions like, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why am I in so much pain? Why is there so much misunderstanding? Why is there so much drama or conflict in my, my life? And the ultimate answer to that is actually that pain, suffering, drama, conflict, understanding are all the major anchor points of realism for the dream of separation to manifest itself as seemingly real. In other words, the dream itself is so not real that it is desperate to appear as if it is real. And so it has to go to some extreme measures to do so because you all along know that you are God dreaming and can't be tricked. And so in order to convincingly trick yourself into believing there's an actually true real world full of people, it has to inject just enough drama, pain, conflict, suffering, and misunderstanding for it to seem real enough. It's kind of like in the movie The Matrix when Agent Smith captures Morpheus and says, you know, we created a perfect world for you, but your mind couldn't accept it. And so we had to make it more realistic. So it's, that's the whole point is that this, there is no real world. There's just a daydream going on within God's infinite awareness. And this is the only way it could have been done. I promise you that. This is the best world for all dream beings considered. Um, and anything beyond that, if you want to go into anything more specific, I can. So when the challenges come up, those are, you know, how, how do you handle that? You just, you, you observe them and not react to them and move above them? Um, there'll be one way of responding. Another way would be a more third mountain perspective that would be to, to play the game from a different angle. So if you ever played a video game, you'll notice that as you get better at playing the game, the levels will get harder and harder. Um, so it's really just an invitation into how to more skillfully manage our lives. I know it's a tall order, um, and I'm not saying that the lives of sages are perfectly put together or well neatly packaged because they're, they're really not. Um, they're quite 
ordinarily uh, comparable is just a different level of awareness. So really it's not so much that the external factor is, is other than it should be. There's a trusting that, that everything is precisely how it should be. The only difference in perspective is that the feeling tone, which is being projected based on what it's seen. So we're all always constantly projecting. And no matter what stage of awareness we're in, all of us are all equally constantly projecting. The way where it differs is what is projected is, is based on what is seen and felt. So what is seen or realized might change what is felt, and then what is felt will change what is projected. But we are always constantly all projecting. All right, thank you. I'm going to think on all that. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think it's important to look at that a little deeper, the question of projecting and the question of responsibility and the question of interpreting what is going on. Because in A Course in Miracles, it says you can't change the world, you can only change your mind about the world, and that with the help of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and I would say that what's really the question or the answer to begging itself to speak here is basically what can you do to be responsible for how you feel? So all of our behaviors are based on how we feel emotionally. So if we're in a bad mood, we're more likely to do something that's, that's less than optimal or less than what we know we're capable of doing. If we're just totally blissed out, it's far more easy to be forgiving or loving or generous, for example. And so really the question is essentially being asked to all of us, it's an invitation, and the invitation is basically, what can I do to feel well? And how can I stay in that feeling of wellness? And that, that too is a tall order. I mean, from age eight to 27, I did not feel well, and I, I was suffering tremendously and seeking uh, ravenously. And only after awakening did it feel like I had some, the edge taken off enough to functionally even live my life. So it is an important question. Um, but then other people will wake up and find themselves debilitated by that on a, a practical life level sometimes. But really to align with God's love is the answer. So if somebody is in tremendous pain and suffering and all the negative emotion, they're at their wits end and they just don't, they've tried all the techniques they already have in their mind and it's not working. They, they tried their medicine, their breathing technique, whatever it is, and their vitamins, their diet, and they're still profoundly suffering, the quickest, most direct path I can give is when you're in that moment, simply be love. It sounds like what A Course in Miracles says, teach what you want to learn. Yeah, pretty much. And in Zen, they say the same thing. You know, there's an old koan about that. He said, well, you know, this guy's in a real bad mood. What would you do about it? Go cheer him up. You know, it's like, what do you, what would you do to yourself to fix that? Or not fix it, but it's like, if, if you're feeling down, what you should do is go lift people's spirits. If, if you're feeling sad, you should smile. You know, there's a whole, in Tibet, they talk about happiness not as something that happens to you, but a skill that you master over the course of your life. And I think that, being happy is a lost art form. 
And sure, you, you can make it easier after awakening, but awakening is not the end-all, be-all, final thing. It, before, during, and after awakening, no matter what step you're on, you can always invite yourself to enjoy more, to invite yourself to be more loving. And really, that's that's it in a nutshell, is lean into bliss, lean into enjoyment, and be love fully. It sounds wonderful, but you know, I, I'm, when we're in these states of unhappiness, feeling unfairly treated or whatever else is coming up in our minds, and whether we're right or not doesn't matter. The fact is that we're feeling awful and questioning our whole lives and our um, justification for being alive at all or whatever, right? There's all these questions that come up when you're in this foul mood. Uh, the question is, so how how do you step into that other perspective that you're speaking of? Because, you know, we, yeah, it is a different perspective, obviously, because when we're in that state, we don't have that perspective. <laughs> and another thing to say, it's it's kind of similar to the question of how do we escape all this duality? And it's really like all this duality is the escape. So the question is basically, how do I escape negative states? How do I avoid feeling half of all human emotions is another side of the question. And here it's all included. So sages flip out too, you know, um, they just calm down quicker. They get real sad sometimes, but they snap out of it. It's just a quicker reset. So the intensity of emotion is still there. Like, I don't know what uh, people are led to believe based on the PR campaigns and the, uh, the perception management of it all, but sages are quite, similar in their day-to-day -day for the most part they just reset quicker and that background state is more readily accessible and so things aren't as sticky so things move quicker and they're less tethered by them but the goal to be clear is not to escape all sadness in life to escape all fear or anxiety in life to escape all anger in life to escape all conflict in life to escape all misunderstanding pain, drama, suffering, conflict. Um, none of that is being avoided here, for example. Um, if conflict arises, uh, a sage is less likely to run away from it. Um, but it's it's almost an impossible task. It's like saying, how do I feel enlightened without being enlightened? I say, well, you already are enlightened. That's the part of the joke is like, you, you already always have been. It's just that it might not be readily felt on a conscious day-to-day -day level. So the best thing you can do is basically realize that the antidote to a negative thought is not a positive thought. The antidote to a negative feeling is not a positive feeling. The antidote to feeling is not feeling. The antidote to thinking is not thinking. And you can reset into that neutrality um, to the extent that you can. So the invitation would be to reset by experiencing the felt sense of no self by turning the self off. How do I stop suffering? Turn the self off. Turn the default mode network selfing of the conscious ego mind, logically seeking, verbally inquiring within, chattering to itself. The answer is to do the impossible, which someone in this state can do effortlessly, but it's it's to stop the mind. Even if it's for even if you're in the let's say someone's in a seeking state and they ask that question, even just to shut the mind off for five seconds goes a long way just to lean into being very aware, enjoying, without 
the word concepts in the mind. So turn the words off in the mind, just be aware. No thoughts, no feelings, just pristine awareness and the felt sense of no self. In Sogchen, we call it pointing out instructions. If you've never had that, if you've had a deep glimpse of that no self, then you can lean into that and ramp it up and kind of amplify that feeling of what it's like when there isn't the self present. The body is functioning, awareness is functioning, everything is functioning except for that primary delusion that we call the separate sense of self or the ego mind. So what can be done to escape the world as it is? The world is perfectly the way it is and it shouldn't be changed and it can't be changed. And that's just part of how the world seems real to us. So there's actually not a problem. Um, but if you're trying to feel well, you can try to lean out of the selfing tendencies. And that's why to focus on others might be a good practical example of that. Instead of thinking about our own self and feeling about our own self, to go be of service to somebody else might be a good way to snap out of that, for example. Any more comments or questions or sharings by anyone here? Go ahead, Henry. Henry, you, there you go. Um, Andrew, you just talked about the world being perfect. Can you please elaborate on that and everything's perfect and there's no need to change it? Because, well, I'm breathing today. I guess I'm changing the world and so are you. You're talking on this thing called uh, Holy Spirit's curriculum. You're changing the world. I don't know. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the seeker, the seeking mentality is in the majority. So if you have a thousand friends, 999 of them are in that seeking mentality and they will corroborate the belief that the world is upside down, backwards and on fire and doesn't look very hopeful. Um, however, and, and they would also a lot of people get very irritated because they've heard this many times where a sage will say, oh, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it perfect? Now it's like, well, no, I, I don't see it that way. And my 999 friends don't see it that way. And it's very clear and obvious to most that it's not that way, in fact. But really, upon awakening, you see the world flips right side up. So you, you realize that the whole time you were looking at it upside down and you realize why things are the way they are. Once you know why things are the way they are and why they couldn't have been done any other way, suddenly you go from being upset and bitter about a given feature within the dream to being infinitely grateful for its role and purpose in allowing the dream to manifest itself. So the way I would put it is somewhat Buddhist terminology, but also going to Christian terminology on it. So the seeker is seeing the world upside down from what it actually is. They're not seeing the world as it is. They're seeing it through the lens of the mind and seeing it all upside down and backwards. They have wrong view, in fact, and they get irritated when a sage will say something like that. But upon awakening, one is given, they talk about the eightfold path. The only one that you need to remember is right view. Upon awakening, right view shifts into place and you see the world right side up. And it's the same world. It's the same dream world but it's nirvana now instead of samsara. So 
Seeker sees the world upside down as samsara or hell. And the sage sees the world right side up as it is, or the kingdom of God, uh, heaven on earth. The sage realizes that we never left the garden, not even for a moment, and that we only seem to leave the garden of paradise, garden of Eden around age eight, but we never actually do. And so the world is perfectly the way it is. It couldn't have been done any other way. Your choices as God were either have absolutely nothing forever or this as it is precisely as it is. So then to flip the question is, which one would you prefer? So Jamuna, you wanted to say something? Go ahead. Oh yeah, aloha kakahiaka brother and uh, one love. Yeah, I just wanted to say I like your hat. Um, I like the fact that you're introducing uh, concepts that a lot of people in the West uh, still are, um, are very novice to. And, um, uh, and also I was curious about those artist pieces behind you. Did you draw those or those paintings or whatever? <laughs> I'm just in a, I'm in a public area and these were hanging on the wall but they're not they're not half bad they're kind of dual away uh, yeah <laughs> aloha big kahuna mm -hmm. um yeah I mean, thank you yeah so in, I noticed like um in the West, a lot of people don't have all these eastern terms kind of locked and loaded in a dictionary in their mind so I'll I do find myself saying, you know, Holy Spirit or aliveness instead of Kundalini, things like that. But it is good to realize that all these things are connected, East meets West, all that has been actualized for a long time. You know, there's there's mystery traditions that can attest to this, that East and the West have already met many, many times over the course of history, and that they're all saying essentially the same thing. So the, the root Absolutely. heart of religion is mysticism but the root heart of mysticism is non-duality but it's again it's it's a more um expanded inclusive mature version of non-duality than is sometimes alluded to in just say radical non-dual uh terms um i'm i'm sorry i'm sorry uh for the last two minutes like this thing that the idea that the world is perfect, I'll, t I'll tell you what happened, is that um, my feed suddenly stopped, and I, I have not heard anything you've said for the last two minutes. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd say that. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to say this, but I, I have to go. I have to get to class. So have a wonderful day, everyone. Aloha. Aloha. Yeah, the world is perfect as it is. Yeah, I think that's the, the flipping of the perspective. I think that's an important thing. It speaks about it in A Course of Miracles and obviously in other traditions as well. That when was that everything is upside down from the way we're seeing it usually. And what, unless you've, oh, unless it has flipped for you, then, then you're, everything's right side up. <laughs> like you said. 
Yeah, it's it's very true. And I, I had a very strange emotion. I remember about a week after I woke up, I was sitting there and I realized I was experiencing the nostalgia of having suffered. In other words, I missed the suffering that wasn't present, which is the craziest thing for a human being to say out loud to anybody, right? A very strange set of words because you first thought, well, you must not have suffered. No, like intense suffering your whole life. And then when it stops, uh, part of you will miss it. Uh, when I was a teenager, I used to make that joke. I'd say, you know, when you die and go to heaven, you're going to miss your knee pain. People go, what the hell are you talking about? But that's part of the experience here is that what we call pain, drama, conflicts, suffering, misunderstanding, those are all functional divine blessings. And it's very, very hard, if not impossible, for the mind to see that. Um, but just imagine a world without hate, because that would mean a world without love. So I'm glad there's hate in the world without there having to be hate in me. There could be things built into the fabric of the world without this character having to take it on or embody it. So just because it's all here and we are complete demonstrations or reflections of that, um, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong. Imagine playing a video game that was so realistic and so open-ended that it had everything in it, everything that this world has in it. If you found something strange that you didn't like in this world, but you found it in the video game, you wouldn't be upset. You'd be delighted that it was also included as a functional feature because it's not real and because you're playing it and enjoying it for entertainment purposes. The reason the world seems so crushingly difficult and hard is because the mind assumes that it's real and that it, that it matters in a particular way based on what we've been told by our cultural conditioning agents, if you will. Um, so, but it is a, a real question because the, the, the suffering is real enough. So yeah, it's just a dream, but the suffering seems real. That's the whole point, is that it allows this dream to seem real. If, if you didn't suffer enough, it would be way too obvious to you that you're God playing sock puppets. And uh, this allows it to seem like more smoothly and continuously that there's more than one being present here having a conversation, which is more important than you might realize at first glance. How does one respond to such statements? <laughs> so, yeah, dream, dreaming, and in the dream, there's all this suffering and all these other things. But in from a certain perspective, when things flip, you're still in the world, but you're no longer part of this suffering game, if I understand it correctly. So you 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 actually are maybe you could call it an upgrade of your character. You don't have to you don't have to um, struggle through all the stuff you're going through at all. But without the struggle, <laughs> I don't know. That's a, that's a good point too. Calling it the suffering game, it's like it's it's kind of like saying uh, I am no longer forced to participate, validate, or corroborate any delusion. And that sounds cold. That sounds like it's alienating or divisive, and it's simply not. I mean, 
They killed Socrates for saying these things. They killed Jesus for saying these things. Um, they're the same things. Um, not much has changed. The message is still the message. How it's translated, how it's interpreted, how it's edited, how it's politicized and hijacked by the suffering game. You know, it's like the sage isn't suffering in the same way. And so it doesn't have to say, yes, we are all suffering. Yes, this is all real. Yes, uh, it doesn't have to lie anymore. And um, it doesn't care about the consequences. It's not afraid. It, nothing can stop it from being the truth that it is. And it's unfortunately not open for debate beyond a certain point any more than is Santa Claus coming down my chimney being open for debate, um, which can be quite frustrating for a lot of members of the audience. Ma imagine if you were in a room full of five-year-olds and you were the only adult in the room and you were trying to convince them that they don't need to be afraid because Santa Claus is not going to punish them. Um, and, and here they are trying to tell you all the reasons they know of and have agreed on together of, of why Santa Claus is coming, why they've all been bad and why they're all going to be punished for that. Um, really there is no doer other than God. So there's only innocence and it's, it's impossible to put this into words. The mind will fight the words of sages. There's a reason I'm wearing black and not white, because I already know where the mind is going to go on some of these topics for some members of the audience. And it's going to come off as anyone speaking the truth is the bad guy, because it's so different from the accepted, agreed-upon consensus of reality. Just like in Jesus's time or in Socrates, it's a little more mild these days. They're not burning us at the stake just yet, but but the mind doesn't want to accept it. The mind will do anything in this world to reject the awakened expression. It, it'll try everything it can. The reason it's doing that is because the mind doesn't want you to awaken. The mind wants you to suffer so that the world can continue to seem real because it isn't. Yeah, I think that's that's a thing, you know. It's mind-boggling for, for. Uh, of course, it's even more mind-boggling when you hear hear it the first time. <laughs> it's like, oh my god! <laughs> and then you go into all this this guilt tripping and all this projecting even more intensely because that can't be true. I mean, I can't be responsible for my experience. How can my thoughts be the reason for my suffering, right? It has to be the world. It has to be somewhere else. And if it's my thoughts, then how do I change them? I'm still thinking them, so I'm going to have the same experience. I can't change my thoughts. So we're very stuck in this, in this inability or this feeling of not able to change anything, which is and very uncomfortable. And it's directly a projection. That's right. So it's it's like a, basically what's happening is when anytime you're talking about the world, you're subconsciously talking about how you feel and see about yourself. So the seeker feels incomplete, like something's missing. So they go, well, the world's not quite there yet. There's something missing. It needs to become better. Um, upon awakening, there's self-love and a felt sense of completion. 
and a felt sense of everything is just right. Everything is perfect internally. And so that's what's projected. The world is perfect. The world is just right. The world doesn't need changing. It's not just a projection of feeling. It is tied into that realization of that shift in perspective. So it's not just one or the other. It's go hand in hand. Um, but everyone's always projecting. And what they're projecting is how they see and feel, particularly about themselves. So anytime anyone makes a comment that's projected, they're always talking about their own inner state. And that's what enlightenment really is, is a shift in the feeling tone internally that is as permanent as the rest of the lifetime. Another important topic that comes up when you speak about these things is the idea when you're saying everything is perfect, people will say, well, then you won't do anything about the suffering. You won't do anything to end the suffering for others or for, for whatever else. And that would be awful. So what do you say to that? And then I'll, I'll let the others have their comments or questions, but I'd like to hear something about that first. Yeah, so it appears like I'm helping people. It appears like, uh, so basically that too is perfect. That urge within us to go help the world is part of its own built-in already there perfection. There's a sufficient amount of that within the dream for that part of the dream to remain functional, just as there is a sufficient amount of chaos within the orderly parametered coding of this matrix world we're in, this dream, this virtual reality, this divine daydream of love that we're in. There's enough chaos, there's enough pain, there's enough of everything needed for it to function. And that's the part most people don't notice. They say, well, how is this perfect for just this one character, me? It isn't, not yet. Uh, nor will it ever be catered to one particular character. Because then they, what will be the point in having a world if it's all catered to one being, then they would just simply not be in the universe because there's only one being to begin with, already infinitely, completely catered unto itself. So the whole point of this entire thing is, how do I, as God, create a world where it seems like there's more than one being present in a way that can continue to function as that type of play? And that's what's occurring. That's what you did. That's what you're doing. And that's why. Okay, go ahead, Julie, and then Henry. Okay, so, you know, I'm a psychotherapist and I, you know, the suffering game, you know, that, that resonates deeply because people come to therapy because they're suffering, they're lost, they can't find their way out. So I, I love my work um, and, you know, my goal with everybody is to help them get self-awareness so that they can see their role in it. The problem is, you know, the work to me seems like how people get so stuck in in the pain and wounds and you know traumatic experiences or you know whatever that they can't see beyond it or you know worrying about what's to come from this point on you know they just get so you know the suffering this i i hear you and um the idea of using our feelings kind of as a guidepost and not getting stuck in it because we have to people have you know strong feelings we have feelings but it's about using them as a guide as opposed to um 
what would the word be like i just feel people so often just get stuck in that you know so so it's it's all resonating with me and i you know i i guess i'm just saying thank you for kind of even bringing me higher up into this idea of um letting go of our own struggle in the in the game here that we're playing so thank yeah you. so yeah. Thank you. I actually have a degree in psychology. It's one of the degrees I have. Okay. And uh, one thing I'll say is that, you know, a lot of people will come to a sage or a psychologist to be a similar audience if they're in the spiritual community because they're, they're looking for the suffering to end. Um, it's usually we go to help for people who have already done the thing we're asking help for. So we tend to trust fat chefs, skinny dietitians, and rich financial advisors. And so for the people we're going to, to trust for the suffering to end, we would we would hope that they, at least more than most, are not suffering. One thing I will say that is kind of a detriment when it comes to psychotherapy and psychoanalysis is that it can sometimes backfire if we are simply going about it in such a way that we say, okay, tell me who you are again and what actually happened to you in this real world. Okay, my name is John Smith and this happened to me. My name is John Smith and this happened to me. My name is John Smith and this happened to me. So we're reinforcing this identity story sometimes. And we need to be careful not to overdo that because we're trying to help people reset and, and, and go forward um, and to reduce the emotional charge tied to memory, which awakening does allow to happen. And there are other ways to do it too. I would recommend things like hypnosis, which transcend the logical seeking ego mind, the conscious mind. Every, everyone in a position of trying to help somebody realizes that they're having to battle the conscious mind of that other person. And so I think things that bypass the conscious mind can be helpful. Um, there's many methods that, that we can use that help bypass that. But the, the intentional storytelling apparatus of narrating, this is my name, this is what happened to me, this is my name, this is my story, this is my identity, this is my identity, this is my identity, that's actually the cause of suffering. So we need to be careful how we go about that. And there are things even in classically trained psychology that uh, reinforce identification, which reinforce suffering. So I would say to be open-minded to different modalities that are less based on the storytelling of what happened to me. And because some people will go to psychotherapy for 11 years straight and will have a dossier this thick and at the end of it, they're still suffering. So we need to make sure that we use different modalities that help bypass the stubborn, strong ego mind. And we have to remember that the conscious mind, the ego mind, the primary delusion, it's quite clever at continuing the suffering game. And so we have to be careful about what we validate as real in somebody telling us those experiences without coming off as cold or yada yada. We have to look at other modalities of, of ways to go about that, not just be stuck in the, the traditional way that we're trained, in other words. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I always find it's about the relationship with them, like um, guiding, guiding them. And, and I always find I am led to some new uh, inside myself personally by being in that relationship with them. So, all right, thank you. And I will, I will consider um, some of those other modalities. Thank you. So go ahead, Henry, you wanted to say something? Yeah, and it's, it's still um, active. I didn't lose it through the 
I, I really like what uh, Julia and you, Andrew, were talking about. It. It's great stuff. Um, so, kind of bouncing with this idea back to the um, idea that the world is perfect. Like, for me, that's not acceptable. I'm, I'm not going to do that. That's your deal. That's still where, like, you and I have different ideas. That's all right. I don't care. So, here goes. Um, a miracle changes this world. <laughs> He's shaking his head. Go ahead. So, in A Course in Miracles, it says that... Uh... A miracle is when something unreal is deleted, essentially. And what we're talking about in this case, you could argue through the lens of ACIM logic, is that that which is unreal that's being deleted is the ego mind, the primary source of the delusion, that which has wrong view, that which never did exist, and yet is somehow being deleted, a miracle unto itself. There never was separation, and yet that feeling goes away. Uh, and again, of course, a miracle defines, at one point anyway, it defines a miracle as deleting something that isn't real from the dream world. And I, I think it's directly talking about the delusional ego mind in that sense. So the mind of a seeker will do anything in this world to validate its suffering as real, ironically. And so, of course, this is to be expected. Like, this isn't... Uh, Anyone who's been doing this long enough is never blindsided by such a pattern. It's quite to be expected, part of the process even. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to fight that. And what it's actually fighting, it's fighting for its justifiable reason to suffer. But it's not just for its own sake. It's not just trying to hurt you. It's for a reason. It's trying to keep you suffering enough that you can't notice that there isn't a real world. And it's actually merciful. You, you you seem to probably translate it as this is a terrible thing that should be different. You know, why can't I awaken these other people in that state? I want that. But really, if the whole world woke up, that, that too would be dysfunctional, ironically. So what's actually happening is, like I said before, the dream is this isn't real. And you don't, you're probably not able to just take my word at that. I understand that. But the dream is so desperate to appear as if it's real and solid and actual and physical and bound by time and space and full of separate beings that live and die and are born and rise and fall and change. And that's not what's going on. There's one being, God, if you will, and it's trying to forget itself in and as us. And that can look like anything at all rather than nothing. A miracle isn't only just um, changing an, um, an idea w which you labeled as ego mind. It's the, the ego mind is much, much bigger than, well, how do I put that? The, the sage is also part of the ego mind. 
that that there would be a sage and there is not a sage is, is part of the ego mind. So let's say we both had a million dollars in our bank account, but I knew how to access it. And I knew that I had a million dollars in my bank account. And you also had a million dollars in your bank account, but you didn't know that you had a million dollars. You might even have the password. You might even have the app ready to go, but you just didn't know there was any money in that particular account. And then one day you check it and to your surprise, there's been a million dollars in that bank account your entire life. And you always thought it was a zero. And you wipe the smudge off the screen, you go, oh my God, what? So it's not that there's something different between the seeker and the sage. Both are fully enlightened. Both are fully God. Both are equal demonstrations or expressions of the infinite divine nature. Um, and we, you, the seeker and the sage might both even know for sure that there's only one being, and it might know every detail identically. The only difference is what is felt. So there's an energetic shift in the feeling tone that flavors the rest of the lifetime. So in that sense, the ego mind is a feeling of being separate when in fact there isn't any. So the ego mind is, is inherently deceitful. You might say the great deceiver is the ego mind. And it's lying to you. Um, the brain is, is lying to the sensibilities, saying that there's a real world, that suffering has something to do with it. And really all of that is just to perpetuate a type of drama and the reason for that drama is so that the world seems more real than it is. Um, so it's it's perfect, not in the sense of like, once you wake up, your individual life is just perfect from now on. It's perfect in the sense of when you see the big picture, you realize that if you changed anything about the world, the world itself would be less. And so I'm speaking not as a person, but quite literally and directly um, from these angles, it would be as if, if, if God were speaking from its, not just what it knows, but what it feels. And I know that sounds crazy because most people don't talk about it in that sense. I can only speak from my own direct experience on that. But when you see why things are the way they are and how it's being done, then you realize it's as perfect as it could be. It's the only way it could have been done. And so again, your choices are either absolutely nothing, experiencing nothing, experiencing nothing, not even I amness, or the world as it is, the universe as it is, and all of its infinite wonder and beauty, and, and the realization that this isn't what it seems to be. So it's not so much that the world is unreal. It's very much so that the world is not what it seems to be. In other words, it's a dream. It's not a solid thing going on. And so matters of survival and legacy and pride matter much less than your qualitative, the qualia, the phenomenological, the experiential aspect, how you feel and what you are experiencing. Um, we are like raw nerve endings of God. So it isn't the body that's experiencing anything. It isn't the brain. It isn't the nerve. It's the same one awareness, the non-dual awareness of God is what is seeing, feeling, experiencing, doing, moving, and nothing else. So the question comes down to who should I trust more, my little mind or the, the infinite mind of God? And the infinite mind of God is not a mind in the sense that we have a mind. It's not a limited, separate faculty. It is infinite, loving, playful awareness itself. I think that's beautifully summed up what A Course in Miracles is also saying. So 
Either you listen to the Holy Spirit or you listen to the ego. It's your choice. <laughs> and yeah, but that doesn't mean we know how to do it or that we actually choose or know how to choose and <laughs> knowingly choose. But yes, that, that's what it, one of the points the Course in Miracles is making. And so, yeah, miracles. And of course, in miracles, there's a whole lot of explanations what a miracle is. But basically, in the beginning, it sums the whole course. It says nothing unreal exists or something, and everything that is real is real, no matter what. Nothing can change that. So it's basically saying there's no danger here. So all is safe. And I, I think when, when, what's so funny is, you know, every, when you're in these awful states of mind, and then you get to hear this voice saying, all is well, you're like, you must be totally crazy because I'm experiencing something totally different, right? Yeah, just for the record, you know, I was one of those frustrated <laughs> seekers hearing these things, and I was just flipping out, you know, uh, on these guys saying the same thing I'm saying now. Years ago, you know, seven, eight years ago, I was on the other side of that, and I was not as uh, reined in or polite as. Uh, as most of my audiences toward me, I was very fiery and like, no, no, that's not it. No, no, you got it wrong. And then upon awakening, he's like, oh, oh yeah, okay. I see what they're saying. You know, it's a, uh, it can't be told, it can't be argued with, but it can be experienced. There really is uh, another perspective. Yeah. So now it's time to wrap up things because we. And we've been actually talking over one and a half hours now. So. <laughs> so thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us here. And you're always welcome to join us live. We have this, we join here right now, it's Mondays, except for when I say there's a break, but otherwise it's every Monday. So you're welcome to join us as well. And yeah, so thank you so much for joining us, for being here, for sharing this perspective with us and these experiences. Thank you, and thank you for the audience as well. Appreciate you guys. It's always a, a good forum to, to have, you know. So, yeah, so thank you all as well from my side for being here, for joining us, for listening, for watching whatever you're gonna you're doing. And please subscribe to the podcast, both on podcast platforms and on YouTube, you can subscribe and spread the word and let people know that they can hear these talks, these exchanges, and they can join live as well. And if any of you want to be a guest on the podcast, please contact me and we'll see what, what comes up. So thank you again, Andrew, and blessings to everyone. Until next time.